Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, September 6th, we are studying the book of Zephaniah. We're getting started on a, this part of the series, Majoring in the Minors, and the text we've got for today is Zephaniah 1, verses 1 to 13, where we will hear the prophet preach concerning the coming judgment against the people of Judah, because the day of the Lord is near. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Philip Hoppe. Pastor Hoppe serves at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota. Pastor Hoppe, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, glad to be back with you again today to discuss more of God's Word, and especially these uh, words from Zephaniah, which I think are both uh, challenging and comforting. Certainly. Uh, the book of Zephaniah, as we'll see, is full of challenging law and also some of the sweetest gospel as well, as we especially get to chapter 3. As we prepare to look at the first part of the chapter one today, and just the book as a whole. Let's talk some introductory material. So what do we know about Zephaniah, his context, his ministry? Uh, let's just get started with that question to, to get going. Sure. I think especially as we do get started, you know, with certain books, maybe they're uh, kind of the, you know, dates regarding when they might have been written in their setting can, can you know, it can kind of vary on how important that is. But I think here we're at such a critical point in Israel, uh, and I should say Judah here, but Israel kind of in the larger sense, but Judah's history, um, that it is very important to understand when these minor prophecies uh, were given and, and this understanding that especially with Zephaniah here, we're talking about, you know, just in the final decades that Judah will be uh, still there in the promised land before Babylon will come. And so, you know, we really get that sense of this um, urgent uh, call that judgment is coming. And yet, blessedly, since we have a merciful Lord, uh, there is also this great word that even after this huge judgment that is coming, uh, God still plans to redeem a remnant of his people uh, and ultimately to include uh, all nations uh, who will look to him in that plan. And so, you know, uh, we've these uh, minor prophets, this is sort of the last of the minor prophets that we would say is before the exile uh, itself. So we have some of the prophets that kind of go uh, along with the exile, some from exile. This is sort of the last uh, of the prophecies that we get right before the exile. Um, and uh, the other thing I suppose then we should, you know, say here is this actually, these words were told, we'll get this in verse one, you know, were given during the reign of Josiah. And if you remember your uh, kind of kings in the southern kingdom, particularly at the end, you get Manasseh, who is uh, just this terrible king, um, you know, rivaled uh, in during the period of the kings, maybe only uh, by you know someone like Ahab and, and Jezebel, uh, you know, prior. Uh, but he is just an awful king. Uh, the uh, the idolatry that he allows is just blatant. It's in the temple courtyard. It's uh, you know, it's just it's right where it should not be, and there's no hiding it at all. Uh, his son. Uh, then follows in his footsteps. Uh, then now we're to what would be Manasseh's, uh, you know, uh, not not his immediate successor, but two down the road there, and we get Josiah. Um, and if people haven't read the story of Josiah uh, lately, it is a wonderful read. Second uh, Kings. Uh, 22 and 23. And we get this, uh, uh, he's often called the boy king because he comes to power when he's eight years old. Um, and But the, the key of his story is that he is actually going to discover the book of the law. Well, not him personally, but the book of the law is going to be discovered and be brought to him. He's going to read it and recognize that all this stuff his, his uh, dad and his granddad right have been doing here uh, are just completely out of line with God's will and 
desires, and he he seeks to take care of this. We'll we'll talk a little later. Probably these words of Zephaniah then actually come before the discovery of that book, because the picture we get is that that idolatry is still going on, sort of unabated. But but uh, Josiah is you know described uh, as just this great king uh, who did everything, you know, he says uh, that he didn't turn to the right or the left, right? He just walked the narrow path. Um, And I mean, when you get into the details of that story, it's really true because he takes care of things that even the other good kings never get around to taking care of. Uh, But that's, that's the setting, kind of the beginning of Josiah's reign where this idolatry uh, placed there by Manasseh and Ammon uh, are just running rampant. And that is what Zephaniah is going to address and really address it by saying, it's over, right? The, this is it for Judah. Uh, the time has come. Yeah, right. So we've, we're in a similar context as the prophet Jeremiah previously. We, we looked at Habakkuk as well. We're in that same very tumultuous period of history in the ancient Near East where Assyria is really slipping as the major world power and Babylon is starting to fill that void. Yeah, and and. Zephaniah tells us that he prophesied during the reign of King Josiah. And depending on where we're going to put him in that reign, you know, based on what's there, maybe a little bit earlier than Jeremiah, but probably some overlap. Maybe Zephaniah doesn't have quite as long of a ministry as as Jeremiah does. We just don't have as much information in terms of what Zephaniah writes down. Jeremiah gave us 52 chapters compared to three from Zephaniah. That's why he's called a a minor prophet, by the way, it's not that he's unimportant, right? It's just that he wrote less. But the the words that he gives us are are very important, and and one of those big themes, and I think you've touched on this already, Pastor Hoppy, at least in in the theme, but maybe not with the the language itself. One of the big themes we're going to see in the prophet Zephaniah is the day of the Lord. What's what is the day of the Lord? How does Zephaniah talk about it in in his book? Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately in these minor prophets, we get a lot of talk of the day of the Lord and the day of the Lord is ultimately judgment day, right? It And, and again, ultimately in that sense of that final day when the Lord returns to judge the living and the dead, as we often say. Um, but at the same time, I think we want to recognize, we often talk about the gospel and the things that will happen in heaven kind of coming from heaven into the present. So for instance, all people will be healed in heaven. And yet when we see a healing now, we say, well, that's kind of a foretaste, right? Well, I think the same is true as far as judgment when you really look at it. The final judgment is there on the last day. But before that, where people are stubbornly rebellious against God, and despite his long suffering uh, patience with the people, they just continue to rebel, he does then pour out his wrath even before that last day, which is exactly what he's going to do here by bringing Babylon into Judah. Uh, And so in that sense, we see the day of the Lord that will come on the last day. We see a, again, if we want to say a foretaste, but it's a bitter, right? A, A terribly bitter taste in the mouth, but a foretaste of that is going to come uh, here shortly, uh, not too far into the future. Right. And then just to, and the day of the Lord is one of those places where we can make a connection to the ministry of our Lord and the work that he does. Because as, especially as we start reading, and we'll get a taste of it in today's text, particularly in tomorrow's where the day of the Lord is going to be mentioned very, well, it's going to be mentioned today, but it's going to be described a little more in, in more detail tomorrow. That day of the Lord, the, the good news is that the judgment that we deserve as sinners that these nations deserved in the days of Zephaniah, that gets placed upon our Lord Jesus in our place. And that's where the day of the Lord can become one of those gospel handles in the book of Zephaniah. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, we see, I mean, that's the the blessed thing, right, is for those of us um, that God has chosen and that, that believe in Christ or baptized, right? We, yeah, we see that Ultimately, this same judgment should fall upon us, but blessedly, right, it falls upon Christ. And therefore, uh, you know, we can rightly say that, you know, the the day there when Christ is on the cross is the day of the Lord. And we're going to be the beneficiaries of that in the sense that eternally we're going to get to live in this sort of, you know, eternal day, if we can uh, put it that way, right, that's going to be at the end of time. 
In terms of the structure of Zephaniah, as, as we'll see, it, it seems to be pretty classic in terms of the structure of the prophets. And even, I think, in what we often refer to as Lutherans as a, a basic law and gospel kind of structure, it, it's going to have a lot more law in terms of length, but the gospel that we're going to get at the end is, is some of the sweetest gospel, I think, in, in the Old Testament. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, we even get here, I know uh, sometimes we go back and forth on exactly whether law and gospel, say in a modern sermon, should always be presented in that order. But I mean, here we really in Zephaniah sort of get that. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't hints of God's goodness in the beginning of the book or that there's still not, you know, lingering thoughts of judgment, uh, you know, near the end of the book. But overall, we kind of get this judgment up front uh, that uh, terror the conscience, right? And then we get these sweet words again of God's plan for his people, for the remnant that cling to him. Uh, we get those wonderful words to kind of leave the book with. Hmm. One more question that I have concerning the the just this introductory material, Pastor Hoppy, something you sent me in your notes is the meaning of the name Zephaniah. What does that mean? How might that be important for the, the book and the prophet? Right. So the word Zephaniah itself means something like Yahweh, again, there, the Lord's name, hides or is hidden. Um, and it, it could be kind of two things, right? We get this at times, you know, we get, uh, you know, the Lord has departed uh, as as one name in the Bible where we're getting an explanation of kind of what God is doing. So it could be that this name hints that God is about to hide himself from his people because of their stubborn rebellion. The other possibility, which I found kind of interesting, is that, you know, Zephaniah was probably born uh, under Manasseh's reign. And some people say maybe actually he was given this name because maybe this true prophet was literally hidden from the evil reign of Manasseh. Um, I don't think we know for certain which one of those it is, but it is one of those things that can kind of give us a sense of that there's trouble uh, going on uh, when Zephaniah is born and when he speaks. Well, let's jump into the book of Zephaniah then. We are in chapter one this morning. We're reading the first 13 verses. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bowed down on the roofs, to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of, on the, day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. That's our text for today, Zephaniah 1, verses 1 to 13. So Pastor Hoppy, that first verse, Zephaniah introduces himself and says that he's here to give the word of the Lord. We've talked about some of that introductory material. What about that, a bit of a genealogy we get there from Zephaniah? What do we find out there? Yeah, and we're actually, interestingly, this is the only place where one of the prophets gives their genealogy back, uh, you know, this far, kind of four generations being listed. And then, you know, we might ask, well, why, if that wasn't kind of the typical way to do it? And, and the why seems to be that he wants to get back to Hezekiah 
here. And so we see that it's very likely here that what Zephaniah is revealing here, uh, unlike a lot of the prophets, is that he actually has a royal bloodline. We're talking about uh, Hezekiah the king here. Now, I guess we should say we don't know that for absolute certainty, but I think that's the most reasonable explanation for why he goes back this far. And when we see this time Hezekiah there, that is what we are supposed to be drawn to. And so, uh, you know, we get this, this sense here again that um, of Zephaniah's, I guess you would say importance, not, you know, self-importance, but uh, that God has chosen him, right? Perhaps even hidden him again for this moment uh, and now is going to use him to bring this word. Hmm. Right. You don't know for a fact that the Hezekiah mentioned there is King Hezekiah. Certainly there would have been other Hezekiahs in the land of Judah. And yet it, it does seem strange that Zephaniah would trace his lineage that far back to Hezekiah and stop there unless that Hezekiah were well known. And and Hezekiah particularly being one of those kings in the line of David who is known as a good king. And, and perhaps, again, that's part of the reason for bringing Hezekiah up, particularly in this case. But one more thing that we probably shouldn't pass over, it, it maybe is just so obvious to us as Christian readers of the Old Testament that sometimes we forget it, but we I think we should bring it up, is that Zephaniah says, that the word of the Lord came to him, that what Zephaniah is going to preach and what he's writing down for us isn't something that he's making up, but it's something that comes from the Lord himself. And that's something that we always want to be certain of when we read the prophets, that these are not their man-made ideas. This is what God himself is declaring through the prophet. Yeah, absolutely. They're not, you know, even, you know, to give them a little more credit, uh, you know, it's not that they're just reading the times, you know, and they uh, read part of the newspaper and say, I don't know, this Babylon sure seems to be growing. I, you know, maybe it's possible they're going to come in. No, right. These are revelations uh, given uh, by the Lord to the prophet uh, to then proclaim uh, out loud. So, and, and it gets started with quite the bang in Zephaniah. Uh, verse verse two, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And that, that language of sweeping things away, that image picks up these first couple verses. Take Help us into to how the prophet Zephaniah begins his preaching. Well, yeah, I mean, this particular verse, uh, you know, even as I came back to reread it here, is it, it's just striking. And I mean, striking in one sense that, you know, it, it has the sound of the flood language, right? That this is, you know, uh, back in Genesis 6 when God uh, decides, right, he's going to send the flood. This is very similar in tone, right, of how disgusted he is with the things that he has made and what they have decided to do. Um, and yet at the same time, this word is actually worse than in the flood, at least in this one sense that when we look back in Genesis, and we often, I don't think, think of this when we're reading it, but at least the fish in the sea are not mentioned as being destroyed, right? It's basically everything that's on the earth. Uh, and then also the birds of, of the air are mentioned because, you know, they need to land somewhere occasionally or at least have the earth to go down and eat from. Uh, so, you know, they all get destroyed. The Bible doesn't, you know, we should be clear here, it doesn't say a lot about what happened to the fish in the sea, right? Whether there was any uh, death that occurred there because of the raging of the sea and things like that. But here, I mean, even the fish of the sea are mentioned. And I mean, it's just, it's comprehensive that there's nowhere to hide from God's wrath uh, that is about to be unleashed. I think the echoes of the flood are definitely there. And I also I also see in these first couple of verses, uh, a reversal of creation, it sounds like. And and kind of noticing along the same lines of what you're pointing out, when the Lord starts, well, he starts, first says, I'm going to sweep away everything. And then he starts naming things. I will sweep away man and beast, birds of the heaven, fish of the sea. It's, it's like he's working his way backward through the days of creation there. Man and beast, that would be creation on the creation on day six. The birds of the heaven and fish of the sea, that would be creation on day five later. And I think it's really more in the the next part of chapter one that we'll look at tomorrow. You get the the day of the Lord is a day of darkness and gloom. I mean, and that, you know, yeah. that's starting to reverse things all the way back to, to the first day of creation. So, I mean, this is echoes of the flood, certainly, but an even greater thing that it's like the Lord is taking creation and I don't know, decreating it, if I can say it that way, that's how severe the judgment that's coming. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is one thing that we kind of always need to remember about God, right? We like to sort of not have the law be quite this complete, quite this total, quite this, I mean, even we could use the word, you know, I don't know, violent here. You know, we we like to believe he's just going to kind of say, ah, it's not too good, a little slap on the wrist, right? But uh, as he says in many places, right, he is the God who kills and makes alive. And so when he speaks his word of law, it is complete. It's not, oh no, you guys messed up a little and I'm going to clean you up. It's no, this thing has gotten so bad that I have to utterly destroy it. And then out of that destruction, I will bring forth something new. I think, you know, a picture like this is a, I mean, it's a helpful wake up call for us because we do like, I think we like to think that our idolatry and our sin isn't all that bad that, you know, I, I do something that's wrong or I fail to do something that's good, and I get away with it. I don't experience many negative consequences from it. And I think, okay, that wasn't that bad. Sin sin must not be that big of a deal. Trusting in myself instead of trusting in God must not be that big of a deal. And it's it's language like this from the Lord, which, you know, when he starts talking about the day of the Lord in Zephaniah and in the prophets, you do get this very cosmic scope toward it. I think language like that really helps to wake us up and and help us to realize just how bad life is when we try to be God. If we try to be God, instead of letting the Lord do his job and be God, this is the kind of thing that happens. It's it's a total destruction. It's chaos. It's it's a reversal of the good that God has given. And and again, you know, as you said, the fact that it's God who's doing it is a reminder that, you know, we may not like his law and his judgment, but that's a part of who he is. That's a part of of what he does ultimately in order to bring us back to repentance and faith in him. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we do want to take this to heart, right? I think especially with Old Testament books, there's maybe even more so than with New Testament ones, there's this wanting to just say, oh, we're just talking here about those Old Testament people and what they did. And they were really, really bad. And so, you know, God uh, responded in a really, really, you know, seemingly harsh or complete way. Um, and we we should want to stop and say, no, right, this is actually what we deserve. You and I that are living today because of our sin, if God was simply just, if there was no mercy in Jesus, right, this would be going on right now. He would be destroying the earth because of us. So in verses two and three, we have this really worldwide cosmic type scope here of the judgment of God that's coming, you know, utterly sweeping away everything. And he's talking about humankind and the rest of creation. But then starting in verse four, he begins to narrow the focus again, which this is pretty typical for the prophets. Let's point this to the people of God themselves. They're the ones who are committing idolatry. What is, how does the prophet begin that move in verse four? Well, I was just, I've got, uh, the end of this week, I have a, a funeral for one of my members who was in his 90s, and he has uh, requested that we use Psalm 121, 1 and 2 for his uh, sermon text, you know, and I was just thinking there, you know, I lift up mine eyes to the hills, right? That's where my help comes from. So the hills there, right, is Jerusalem, where God has located himself, where his help comes from. And here now, when we get into Zephaniah, now we see that same very place where God had set up to be the seat of his mercy, the seat from which his help would go forward uh, throughout through the idolatries of the kings of Judah and the people as well. Um, that same city now has become filled with all sorts of idolatry uh, to the point where it's hard in the very city that God's name is to dwell. It's almost as if God is not mentioned there. The true God, every other God, oh yeah, they're mentioned. They have a shrine. They have something to go to. Uh, but the true God is almost not mentioned there. And so you can imagine now in God's um, his his creation, when he has decided to place his name in Jerusalem, and now what it has become, he says, right, here is where the judgment is going to 
begin, if you will. And you just think about it as far as, you know, God being the king uh, sitting in Jerusalem, it, it in one sense just makes sense that, right, if you were going to judge the surrounding areas, you kind of have to start and go out. But here I think it's much more of a a theological kind of construct where we say here, this is God saying, this is supposed to be the place. I mean, think of Jesus, right? Taken out. We'll come back to this in a little bit, but Jesus uh, going into the temple and cleansing it. It's a very similar thought here. Here's supposed to be the place where my grace and mercy pours out upon my people. And yet now it is the very place where the gravest idolatry is happening. Yeah, Peter says, I think it's in his first epistle, that judgment starts with the house of the Lord. And and so it is in the days of Zephaniah, in the place where the Lord's temple is, that's where the grossest of idolatry is happening. And the Lord is going to speak to his people about it through the prophet Zephaniah. We will pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You are listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Zephaniah chapter one this morning with Pastor Philip Hoppe. We will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, September 6th. We are studying Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 to 13 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. He serves at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota. Pastor Hoppe, prior to the break, we were talking about the idolatry that begins to be condemned by Zephaniah in verses 4 through 6. And you mentioned earlier that some of this language here might give us a clue as to when Zephaniah preached in the reign of King Josiah. What, how, how does that work out here in these verses? Well, again, if you go back and read what goes on with Josiah, you find out, right, that he becomes king after, again, uh, of course, Manasseh and, and Amon or Ammon uh, has been there, uh, and, and that they have been just increasing the idolatry in the land. And, uh, you know, Josiah comes in at a young age, and then they, they find uh, the book of the law uh, in the temple as he's ordered them to sort of do repairs on the temple. And when they find this, he reads it and, and again recognizes all this idolatry that's going on. I mean, it almost seems like to this point, that stuff is so common that he doesn't really see it as a trouble. And really that maybe now for at least three generations, right? We don't, we don't know exactly how long the book of the law has been missing, but this has become not only, I mean, common in the sense of just it's going on, but that no one even knows that it's not supposed to be going on. Um, and so when we read here these words of Zephaniah, he sure seems to speak in a way that suggests that this kind of outright idolatry all over Judah and right up into the temple itself, that all of this is going on, um, suggests that this was probably written before Josiah begins his work of reforming Judah. Uh, again, go back and read the story of Josiah, and you'll be amazed at all the places he has to go and all the things he has to tear down. He kind of pulverizes them and throws them in the valley. Um, but I mean, it's just, it's not a very long section, a couple chapters, but you'll just be kind of amazed that from, again, Jerusalem itself out into the areas, even back to where Jeroboam, the first uh, king uh, there in the north has placed things. He goes up there and takes care of, you know, those high places that were there. So, I mean, Josiah really does take care of all sorts of things uh, that even prior good kings do not. And so, again, it would lead us to believe that, you know, if that all had happened, uh, well, then, you know, maybe Zephaniah would not speak in this way. Put a different way, Zephaniah, the prophet, speaks and then Josiah actually 
fulfills that prophecy, not by his own strength, right? But because God has chosen him to be the one to fulfill it, right? Uh, he, you know, he says, you know, Zephaniah says, I'm going to wipe out these things. Uh, then you look and watch what Josiah does. He does wipe out these things. Like I said, he literally pulverizes them, uh, burns them with fire, all sorts of things to just destroy this idolatry that's there. And the idolatry is all over the place, as you said. I mean, Zephaniah lists just about any way you can commit idolatry here, from a named idol to bowing down to the stars. I mean, it's it's all there. The one that that really stands out to me that I think is is worth our time to talk about because it's maybe easy for us to think, oh, we don't have these little statues anymore. You know, we're not we're not engaged in this sort of gross idolatry. Well, in at the end of verse five. Zephaniah says he's talking to those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. That that part of the idolatry that's happening in Jerusalem during the days of Zephaniah, some of it is being dressed up by, by saying, oh, look, we're still going to the temple or we're still worshiping the Lord. Sure, we're worshiping Milcom on the side, but we're still worshiping the Lord. It's not a complete forsaking of the Lord and his temple, perhaps, but it's trying to add other gods into the mix. And that kind of idolatry receives that same condemnation from Zephaniah here. And I think if if we're tempted toward an idolatry as Christians, that's one of the first ones, is to not give up the Lord completely, but to try to add other gods, other things to trust in. We want to put those into the mix as well. And, and Zephaniah says, no, that doesn't work either. Yeah, and I think especially that's where we've been. I mean, increasingly, sadly, we do see uh, former Christians now sort of coming out and just saying, you know, I'm done with this whole God thing, right? And I'm going to live my life in accordance with something else, which is more of an outright idolatry. But I think you are right that for most of us, and probably especially those that are listening to this program, the temptation is, yeah, to, oh yeah, I worship God and this other thing that I kind of think is really helpful. Um, and again, we could, you know, probably in this case doesn't help a lot to mention a lot of specifics here, uh, just because there's they're so manifold. But again, anything that, you know, you're kind of riled up about and you think is kind of the key to life and it's not God, right? Well, uh, there you have it, right? This is, yeah, I worship God, but I also worship this other thing. And quite frankly, if you were to watch a lot of our lives from a distance, you might think those other things get us a lot more riled up than our dedication to God. And I think that was the case here at the end of the time in the promised land too, right? There still was, you know, some recognition that that was God's temple, but the things that the people were most interested in were these other idols. Well, I mean, I'm reminded of of the prophet Jeremiah, where you've got, I think it's in chapter seven, where, you know, the people are saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as if just having that building there, that's, that's, everything's okay, because we've got that. And I think maybe a similar thing is, is happening in the words of Zephaniah here that sure, they're happy to acknowledge, yes, the temple's there. But what really drives them? Well, it's in this case, swearing by Milcom or, or any of these other forms of idolatrous worship. As, as you were saying, that's really what drives them. And again, we want to, you know, there's any number of things that we can put in that place. I'm reminded of the, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you know, you, you can't serve two masters. You're either going to yeah. love one and hate the other devoted to one and despise the other. He, he singles out in that context, you can't serve God in money. But, but anything could go in the place of money. You can't serve God and blank. Whatever that is that you're going to put your trust in, you can't serve both. And, and generally what happens, as you said, that idol starts to take prominence if we try to, to set it up alongside the one true God. Yep, absolutely. And again, we this is where we need our uh, you know our pastors to preach the law. This is where we need Christian brothers and sisters to point out to us when we're doing this, right? When again, they see us and every time they see us we're talking about this thing or that thing and it's not God, right? That that again, you know, we need Christian brothers and sisters and pastors that will say to us, now, you know, again, that thing may not be bad. It might even be good, but it's not God, right? It's not the thing that should be the controlling force in your life. 
In terms of the false gods that are mentioned here, we've got Baal, Milcom, anything to, to point out about those two or any other idolatry that's happening here? I mean, I think really, I mean, Milcom is, you know, the god of the Ammonites, but I mean, and, and, and you know, Baal kind of this, I mean, people kind of go back and forth on how widespread, but, you know, kind of a Phoenician god. Um, and all these, I think really the point here, like you said at the beginning, is not so much the particular gods, but that, you know, one of the ways I was thinking about it is, you know, the commandment saying you shall have no other gods before me. I think the real point is that they have pretty much every god before him, right? It, so again, it's not a, a small breaking of this commandment, but basically they've moved into Jerusalem, any god they can think of uh, to worship as well. So up through this point, this has been the word of the Lord directly. This is the Lord talking. I will sweep away. I will stretch out my hand. And and that quotation then ends basically in, in verse six. The Lord has finished speaking for a moment. And it's almost like you can picture the people listening to Zephaniah, getting ready to raise their objection. And Zephaniah says in verse seven, be silent before the Lord. Don't don't even try to talk here. Take us into to the move that, that happens in verse seven. Well, yeah, at the risk of, you know, hopefully this won't bring you, you know, phone calls into KFUO. But in one sense, right, Zephaniah here brings the word of the Lord, which tells all the people that want to now stand up and defend themselves and sort of exalt themselves before God. He says, shut up right? Uh, you be quiet. You don't have a right to speak. You should not speak. This is a time to listen. And why? Because the day of the Lord is near. There's no time to mess around with further justifications, to try to say, here's why we're doing this. Here's why, you know, this is going on. No, the time is urgent, right? Either you repent fully, immediately, or else, uh, and maybe I should just leave it there, or else, right? That's <laughs> kind of what we're getting. Right. I mean, the the and, and I didn't look at the the totality of the Hebrew text here, but in verse seven, that word in in Hebrew for that's translated "be silent," the word is is "has," which I, I think is I've in some of the things I've read is maybe an onomatopoeia, like "hush," "be quiet," right. and yeah. you know, you know sh- "shut up" is is maybe the the force for it. And and this is you know it, this is something that the law of God does. Our our tendency when someone accuses us of our sin, when that law comes and says you are a sinner, our our tendency, and we're so good at this, is to justify ourselves. And Zephaniah here reminds us, don't do that. Just be quiet. Listen to God. And and Paul Paul does the same thing in Romans three, where he makes that move from law to gospel in the book of Romans. In Romans three nineteen, he says, "Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped." Right. And, and it's that that same idea when when God speaks His law, the proper response from us is not to offer our own justification, but just to be quiet. I mean, if, I guess if there is a word to say, it's amen. You could just nod your head silently if you do want just to be quiet and let God ultimately, I mean, the reason you have to be quiet is because when you start speaking and try to justify yourself, you can't do it. The reason you need to be quiet is because God is ready to justify you through his son, Jesus Christ. So be quiet and let God do his thing. Don't try to argue with him. Just be quiet. That's right. Allow him to kill you and he will make you alive, right? I mean, it's, it sounds drastic, but that's that's ultimately the thing. Don't try to fight anymore. Don't try to, you know, think you're going to stand up against God. Just let him do his complete work. And on the end of it, that will be good for you, blessedly good. Mm. So be quiet, the prophet says, and it's because the day of the Lord is near. And that's, again, we mentioned that this is one of the big themes for Zephaniah. He's going to start to draw that out a little bit. How, what what does the Lord talk about? What's going to happen on his day as as he begins? He talks about a sacrifice and and punishment. What's going on in these verses? Yeah, so this is something that, you know, as I studied this again, you know, the language here um, is certainly, you know, common language in one way, and yet we don't get specifics. But again, I, I became convinced by, you know, reading a lot of things on this that the sacrifice that he's talking about preparing here is actually the the people of Judah, right? They're going to be sacrificed. And I should say here, 
the rebellious people of Judah, right? He he is uh, throughout this book and at this time, he is still calling people to repentance. He has uh, promised that there is going to be this remnant of faithful people, but the vast majority of Judah are these rebellious, idolatrous people, and they are going to be sacrificed as Babylon is brought in. Um, and, and that makes it just, I mean, a grave picture. And yet here, like I said, it's not that we don't get any gospel because whenever we get this talk of the day of the Lord, it it, it, it seems like it almost always ends up in feast language, right? That there's a meal served. And here again, that is what we see is that his people, now here not his people by bloodline, right? But his people by faith, I mean, always that way, but you know what I'm saying here is that the the others might think, hey, we're his people by bloodline. He says, no, my people by faith, those who through repentance and faith, right, receive the gifts that I want to give to them. Well, you know, those people, they're going to sit down and eat, right? While everyone else is sacrificed. I don't know, Pastor Apple, is that how you read the sacrifice language as well? I, I think so that yeah where the starts the Lord is prepared to sacrifice he's consecrated or set apart his guests it it has that you know as the text continues and what's going to happen I, I do think that there's supposed to be that that thought that okay what is the sacrifice the Lord is actually going to bring judgment upon his own people I mean they're if you think about what's happening there and they're they're abusing the sacrifices. They're not using them for the proper purpose. And so the Lord says, okay, if that's how you're going to act toward me and my holy things, then this is the the punishment. And I do, I do think that that's for the people of Judah who are being rebellious. That's the thought is that what they're doing in their idolatrous worship, the Lord's going to turn it on its head and make them the sacrifice, which again is a rather horrifying thing for us to think about, but that is the way that God speaks. Now, the if, if we can, you know, as, as Christian readers, knowing the fullness of the story, as those who who hear words like this and recognize our own need for repentance and and are silent before the Lord, then he will, you know, turn this language upon himself ultimately. And, and that we begin to hear, you know, reading this in the context of of all of God's counsel and particularly the gospel that the Lord preparing a sacrifice and consecrating his guests ultimately comes back around upon him. And, and he's the one who offers himself as sacrifice in order to invite us as his consecrated, his made holy guests. And that's, I mean, I think that that's how it, it comes back around in, in gospel when we have that fullness of repentance and faith, but for the people of Judah at the time who are rebellious, yeah, I, I think you're right. That's where the, the sacrificial language is, is taking us. Yeah, and, and I think ultimately, again, we do understand this, right, that whenever we hear language of sacrifice, especially, again, being blessed to live when we do with the full revelation of Christ and what he has done for us, right, yeah, we're going to start going like, Oh, sacrifice talk, right? This is ultimately something that God is going to do, right? The, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's that's where eventually we're going to go with this. But I, but I, we don't want to. When we're looking at the Old Testament, and we speak about looking at it Christocentrically or putting Christ everywhere, and I shouldn't say putting Christ, finding Christ everywhere where God has placed him, it doesn't mean that we ignore the immediate context. And I right. think in that immediate context, that's what we're seeing here is that, yeah, Judah's being said, you, you, you are the one that is going to be sacrificed because of your rebellion. Right. And and as the as the text continues, we do hear from the Lord again in verse 8 he says, "I will punish." And he he singles out, you know, kings and officials and also the ones arraying themselves in foreign attire and then those who leap over the threshold. That's the way the ESV translates that. What are what's being talked about there? Any any ideas to what Zephaniah is referring to? Yeah, well, I think overall the basic picture here is these are all things where God's people are trying to act like the nations, right? And again, we get this overall context as we're coming to the point where we're going to be talking about the exile from the promised land. We want to kind of think back to when they went in, right? And if you wanted to kind of summarize 
the overall law that they're giving, right? It's to be set apart as God's people, to live holy lives that are different uh, than those around them. And here now at the end, we see they are picking up every kind of custom from these other nations. And again, right, there's still this, you know, tip of the hat to Yahweh. Uh, but they're doing all this other stuff as well. So they're wearing, you know, this foreign attire, which is probably like, again, like sort of looking like the other nations. I, I did read a few people that says, you know, this could even refer to some of the forbidden clothing uh, in the Levitical law, right? Like men wearing women's clothing and things like that. But but overall, at least the point here is, again, they're not living as, as the people of God. Uh, you know, this leaping over the threshold. Uh, again, it's one of these things, we don't know the exact reference uh, to that. Uh, we do get this one biblical story, right, where the, the Philistine god Dagon uh, is, uh, the, the Philistines, right, have the ark and they place their god there by the ark uh, and he gets uh, decapitated and I don't know, how do you say, loses his arms and legs too. I don't know what the word for that is. Uh, But we're told there that, you know, uh, he's on their God is on the threshold when this happens. And so some people think it kind of became a a superstition of theirs that they would leap over thresholds, Uh, you know, but it's hard to tell exactly what's going on here. But I think unquestionably the point is you're acting like these nations. The very thing I set you apart from, you now look just like them. And so in verse 10, on that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard. And what I, what I find astounding about this is, you know, the Lord said, be silent in verse 7. But now you do start to hear things and, and the sounds that you're hearing are not good. There's a cry, there's a wail, there's a loud crash, more wailing in verse 11. Take us into these verses. Well, yeah. So here we kind of get now this picture of what is going to happen. And with some level of detail here, and in particular, we're talking now uh, about sort of geographical detail uh, down to the point of when Babylon comes, how are they going to come into this area of Jerusalem, right? And so, uh, you know, they're going to go in by the the fish gate uh, where this fish market kind of would have been right there by this gate as you entered. And then they're going to go into the second quarter and you kind of, it gets bigger, right? Then they're going to start to go up the hills uh, and all these things here, right? The point is, this is kind of all the city of Jerusalem is going to be uh, destroyed. And one of the things we find out here in the midst of this, you know, is this idea of, you know, all the traders no more, uh, you merchants we get here and all these different kind of pictures is, you mentioned before the Lord saying you can't serve God and money. It seems like there's a, you know, a particular emphasis here that when they're coming into the city, they're taking out those who are probably dishonestly dealing with selling things, weighing money, all these kind of things that judgment is brought upon them. And again, we can still see to this day, right? We all know one of the reasons the Bible mentions money so often as a ready idol is because there's no period in history where that has not been uh, the case, right? And and our day certainly as well. Um, and again, think of Jesus going into the temple and turning over the money changers table, right? We get all this kind of come together here. And he says, this is sort of where the judgment is going to begin. And those that have trusted in money will all of a sudden know that their time has come. The imagery continues to be very vivid in verse 12. The Lord's going to search Jerusalem with lamps. I was reminded of the parable that Jesus tells of the lost coin where the woman, you know, uses a lamp to search for that lost coin and, and finds it with great joy. And here you have the image of the Lord searching, but not to to save, but now to punish. And particularly those who are complacent, they're saying in their hearts, the Lord won't do good and he won't do ill. I think this is one of the the key phrases here that Zephaniah condemns. Yeah, and especially, again, in relating it to us, right? I mean, again, like you said, when we hear of the actual idol set up, it's very easy for us to distance ourselves, right? And then we hear about the the idol of money, and we might go, okay, that's coming a little closer to home, but no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still pretty good. And then you get this kind of just idea that, you know, yeah, God's maybe out there somewhere, but he's really not going to do anything. And you you mentioned before, right, how we can get complacent because we 
do do things and it appears that God does not act, right? We, we may do something even horrific that we thought, you know, we would never do. And in the moment, we might all of a sudden wonder, well, what will come of this, right? And then it seems like, well, things didn't go terribly bad. Um, so this is the kind of thing he's definitely rebuking here is the people that think in this way, and then they become complacent and they think God's not going to do anything. And like you said, yeah, then God is going to come and find those people. Um, you know, uh, as we're recording this, you know, and I, I think this will air a little bit later. I hope I'm not breaking the the wall too much there. <laughs> uh, That's fine. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when as we're recording, right, you hear uh, over in Afghanistan, you know, of the Taliban ban sort of going door to door looking for people that helped out and that's really the kind of image we get here of god right now again not to equate the taliban and god but the sense of he is searching out these people who again are just sort of sitting around in their houses having a good time thinking god won't do anything and then god's going to show up and all of a sudden right they're going to know that indeed God does act. He acts both in his judgment, but also, you know, to those who repent in his mercy. Right. Yeah. I mean, just this idea that God is sort of out there. Maybe I acknowledge that he's real, that he exists, but I don't really expect him to do much of anything. He's just kind of there and he's not going to do good for me. If I want something good, I better get it on my own. And he's not going to do anything bad to me either. If I, if I, sin, then eh, he he probably won't care. And and it's that sort of, I think I've heard it called practical atheism that that is such a, a danger that we would live our lives as if God isn't active within our lives, as if he's not ready to bless us or to, to punish us one way or the other, this just sort of eh, attitude toward God. That was what is, was infecting the people of Judah and, and certainly a danger for us still today. Pastor Hoppy, we've got about two minutes left on the morning. For any final thoughts on on verse thirteen, what Zephaniah prophesies there, and then particularly as we reflect on on a text that is certainly heavy with words of judgment and law, how a text like this helps to point us to our Savior Jesus Christ. Yeah, so I guess the last thing I would say is we get kind of classic judgment language here. When God is going to bless, he'll often tell people, you're going to get to eat things you didn't do any work to get, right? And when he says he's going to bring his judgment, it's exactly the opposite. You're going to do all the hard work to plant, right, and to get these crops. I mean, imagine again, right, doing all the work uh, for a garden all year round, and then all of a sudden when everything gets produced, you're taken out of your home and somebody else gets to go in and just eat that, right? Uh, That's that's the picture here. And as you said, all of this then is, you know, very strong language of judgment um, that, you know, the people are essentially going to be without food, even though they thought they had prepared for their own food. And so what does that do? Well, again, this is where we need not in the end, because we know of Christ, we need not throw away the law or water it down. We just hear it, right? We shut up. We hush ourselves. And we say, oh, I am a poor, miserable sinner. And then God says, hey, I got something for that. I've got my only son, right, who I'm going to offer up as the sacrifice for the whole world. And through him and his work, you will be saved from your sin. And you're going to get to sit down and feast with me instead of being punished. Pastor Philip Hoppe is pastor at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota, helping us today with Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. Pastor Hoppe, thanks for being our guest today. So glad to be here again. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Zephaniah, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send up to a 60-second message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.